In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. Now in verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called his name Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. 
And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids. I didn't release you yet, kiddos. Y'all go back to your seat. That was a long reading, wasn't it? And I want to tell you kids, y'all did a really, really good job. We're not leaving yet, guys. I'm talking to y'all. Y'all sit down, sit down up here. You too, Miss, Miss Brittany and Miss Savannah. I'm trying to talk to the kids. You can't hear me over there. It was long. Lily, Henry, come on, come on, come on. I want all the kids to look at Pastor Jason real quick. All the kids look up here. That was a really long reading. But do you know why we keep the kids in here when we're doing that? Because this is God's word. And when God's word is being read, God is talking to us. And so we think it's important, even though you all are about to go over there and sing songs and hear a sermon that I wrote for you this week. It's important to hear God's word read, and we want to do it together as a church family. So good, good listening. Y'all did a really good job. But now, if you're first grade and under, I'm going over for our children's worship. We have had injuries over there before. It's true. Nothing too bad. So for two weeks, we've been getting to know a relatively obscure Bible character named Ethan the Ezraite. Ethan wrote Psalm 89 during a miserable time in his life, and uh, it was also a miserable time in the history of Israel. And yet, despite the misery around him and despite the misery in his heart, Ethan trusted God. But how? He looked backward. He looked to the history of Israel to see what God had done in the past. And God's consistent actions in the past revealed God's character to Ethan. As Ethan looked backward, he learned to trust that God was good, that God was faithful, that he was trustworthy, even with the things that were happening in his life and in the life of God's people. 
But in Luke chapter 1, we meet an anti-Ethan. We meet a man who's had real difficulties and challenges of his own. And amid his pain, he doesn't look backward. He doesn't think of God's past actions. He doesn't consider God's character. And as a result, he doesn't trust God. So let's look verses 11 through 17 in Luke chapter 1. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah, delivers a message directly from God, a promise from God. And what's the promise? Well, there's a very personal aspect to this promise that the child they had longed for, for many, many years, would finally be born. They were going to have a son. But then that very personal promise takes a big turn and becomes this vast cosmic promise. This son that would be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth will prepare the way for the Messiah, leading many Israelites to repent of their sins. Well, how does Zechariah respond to this remarkable promise in verse 18? And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. How does he respond to the promise? He doesn't believe it. He functionally looks back at the angel and says, prove it. We couldn't have kids before. What makes you think we can now? I'm an old man and my wife is beyond childbearing years. Why doesn't Zachariah believe? Pain that is personal to us can cause us to doubt promises from God that are bigger than us. It's almost like Zechariah doesn't even hear the second part of the promise, which is much grander than the first. The Messiah, the king of the nations is coming. Salvation is coming and his son is going to pave the way for the savior. Zechariah misses that altogether because of a very deep, very real, very personal pain. He and his wife have been unable to conceive and that as some of you know, is a tremendous grief to carry. Zachariah couldn't see past that pain. His pain, his experience, his questions, his doubts, they defined reality for him. Meanwhile, God's character demonstrated in his past actions. He doesn't look to them at all. Zachariah's pain, his experience, defines his understanding of the world. How does Gabriel respond in verse 18? Zachariah said to the angel, How shall I know this, for I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years? And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Gabriel shuts Zachariah's mouth. Why? He says, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. He shut Zechariah's mouth until he could see God's promises coming true. And then once Zechariah has had an opportunity to see God's actions and therein to learn God's character, then his mouth would be opened again. And that's how the story plays out. Guess what happens? Elizabeth gets pregnant. And Zechariah silently watches God at work. Then her relative Mary becomes miraculously pregnant with the Messiah while Zachariah silently watches and waits as he sees God at work. Then the pregnant Mary, even though he's silent in the scene, where does she go? She goes to Zachariah's house. And Zachariah's son is filled with the Holy Spirit in utero while Zachariah is just there silently watching God at work. And eventually, Zachariah's son is born. And after watching God at work, fulfilling promise after promise after promise after promise, finally, Zachariah trusts God's character. And God opens his mouth. Look at verse 62. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Zechariah learned to trust God the same way that Ethan the Ezraite did in Psalm 89. It was by watching God in action. Observing what God consistently did and therein finding him to be trustworthy. If God can do all these things, then surely he can keep all of his other promises. We must all come to terms with whether God is trustworthy. And that realization is usually born out of great pain and longing. Ethan realized the trustworthiness of God. In the days following the destruction of Jerusalem. Zechariah learned it after a long, difficult road of infertility and the grief that comes from that. But here's a question. When God enabled Zechariah to speak again, were all of God's promises to him fulfilled yet? No. Only the first part of the promises had come to bear, that they would have a son, that he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit in utero, uh, that they would call him John, that people would rejoice at his birth. Those things had happened, but there were still promises yet unfulfilled about how John would turn people's hearts back to God and prepare the way for the Lord. So don't miss that. Some of the promises were fulfilled, but some were not. Promises that God has already fulfilled in the past Help us to trust in his promises that are not yet fulfilled. Stated differently, if God could do that then, if he can fulfill those promises, then surely he will keep these other promises in a similar way. And herein, we find the relationship between faith and hope. Hope happens 
when a backward-facing faith looks forward to the future. Hope happens when a backwards-facing faith looks forwards to the future. So let's talk about hope. Let's see a, a, a show of hands. Kids, y'all can get on this, but grown-ups too. Uh, and I'm, yes, I'm tricking you. Um, how many of you are hoping for a white Christmas? Anybody out there hoping for white Christmas? All right. Well, I, I'm, I'm sorry to be the, the bearer of bad news. Uh, your hope for a white Christmas, it ain't hope. That's wishful thinking. Hope is the result of a backward-looking faith. So let's look backward. This is going to be my 13th Christmas here in southeast Louisiana. So let's just think back on the 12 Christmases that I have enjoyed here in St. Tammany Parish. You know how many of those have been a white Christmas? Zilch, that's right. We haven't had so much as a flurry on Christmas Day in the last 12 Christmases. In fact, probably half of those I've worn shorts because it was so warm outside. So what do I expect? What is my expectation of this Christmas day? Not snow. That's how faith and hope work. Faith looks backward for something consistent and trustworthy. And as it applies that trust to the future, hope forms. Let me give you a better and less silly example of hope. Will the sun come up tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, technically none of us knows. Things could go completely sideways. Yeah, Jesus could come back. But as we look backward, has a sun come up every other day? Well, of course it has. Therefore, we hope that the sun will come up tomorrow because it always has. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope looks backward and sees what has happened consistently, Most clearly, as we look at the actions of God and we see the things that he has done, we expect him to continue doing those things forever. But here's the kicker. What about the present moment between our faith and hope? What do we have here? Often our present experience is pain. And that lives in the space between faith and hope. And so we endure the night hoping for the dawn. And that hope is not born out of mere sentimentality. It's born because we have looked backward and found something solid to rest our faith and our hope in. So hope looks beyond now to what will be. The question then is, what will be? If God's past actions and character continue, what can we expect in our future beyond our present pain and difficulty? What does the future hold? And the answer lies in the promises of God. What has he promised for the future? In the past, God kept his promises, and we should expect the same in the future. So what is our sure hope then? When we have pain in the present, our hope is not some vague, holiday-sounding sense that, well, things will get better. This too shall pass. It'll all make sense in the end. No, 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 no. Don't give me that nonsense. I mean, it's true, but God has made promises. Hard, bold, clear, exciting promises. And these are the things that are our hope for the future. 
So in the promises God has made in the past, we discover a vision of the future, of our future. We see our hope, and that hope is salvation. This is our hope, salvation. And that's a word Christians use regularly. We'll talk about people getting saved. We'll talk about experiencing God's salvation. But usually when we talk about salvation, we're we're speaking in a very narrow sense. We typically mean we've been saved from God's wrath over our sins through the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus' death on the cross. And that's true. Amen. But when Zechariah's mouth is opened and he sings about salvation, the way he sings about salvation is much bigger than that. So how does Zechariah describe salvation? kind of breaks down into three things, and we're going to look at it together. So Zechariah's understanding of salvation, first of all, is the fulfillment of promises made to Abraham, Moses, and David. So he sees these promises started way, way back. Second, he understands, uh, his understanding of salvation sees Jesus as the central figure in fulfilling those promises. So all these promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, are fulfilled in Christ. But third, his understanding of salvation should color our vision of the future and our response uh, to present pain. So do you want to know what the future holds? Do you want to know what you have to look forward to? You can see it in promises already made to Abraham, Moses, and David. And Zechariah believed Jesus was the fulfillment of those promises. And our hope, the thing that pulls us through, forward, through our, our pain and difficulty... Our hope is the fulfillment of promises made a long, long time ago. So it seems crucial that we would know these promises. So what is the future salvation provided through Jesus? Here's a caveat I want to make. Sorry, I I jumped the gun on my slide. This salvation, while it's already been accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, will not be complete until he returns. Thus... The salvation we now experience imperfectly and partially, we will experience perfectly and fully then. So you see this language in the Bible about we are saved and we will be saved. There's kind of this this longing and hoping for the, the fulfillment of what has already been accomplished. So we're waiting for a specific event when Jesus comes back. That's our hope, when Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, all these things that we're about to talk about, they're going to come to bear in full. And the salvation that comes on that day in Zechariah's song, which I promise we're going to get to, has three different aspects to it. There's a spiritual aspect, there's a relational aspect, and there's a physical aspect to it. So those who trust Jesus will be saved first spiritually. We're going to unpack this. From the personal stranglehold of sin's power and guilt, including death, we'll be saved relationally from our alienation from God and other people. Those are two long words to fill in, so I'll pause. We're saved spiritually from the personal stranglehold of sin, and we're saved relationally from our alienation from God and other people. And then third, we'll be saved politically and physically from a broken creation and the corrupt civilization that inhabits it. So these are the things that we see Zechariah left hoping for. And they're things that we experience now in part. Isaac's afraid. Here, I've got a key. (laughs) So these are the things that Zechariah is left hoping for. And they're things that we experience now in part. 
even as we look forward to their completion upon Jesus' return. So let's look at this first one, that those who trust Jesus will be saved spiritually. So as Zachariah's mouth is opened and he sings a song of hope, how does he describe our spiritual state? Look at verse 79. We're starting at the end of the song and working our way backward. Zechariah sings that God will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah's song sounds similar to, to Solomon's Ecclesiastes or Plato's Allegory of the Cave as he describes the spiritual state of humanity. What is our spiritual condition on the day that we are born? We sit in darkness. Death looms over us with an uncomfortable inevitability, and there's no peace. What salvation do we need? We need not only forgiveness of our sins. We need not only the merciful, patient love of our heavenly judge. We need to be brought out of darkness into the light. So look at verses 76 through 79. He says of his son, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Jesus came not simply to bring forgiveness of sins, he came to set us free from the power and darkness of sin. Wasn't this the problem that Moses faced as he and Israel wandered in the wilderness? God had given them a law and told them what to do, what not to do. What could they never do? We got any Lutherans in the room? They couldn't keep that law. Consistently, they couldn't keep that law. Something inside them was messed up. Something inside them was spiritually broken. They couldn't get over the stranglehold of sin. And the result of that stranglehold was death. That's the same problem that led Israel into exile in Assyria and Babylon. Why did they get dragged away? Because consistently they failed to obey God's law. They didn't repent. They didn't follow him. They didn't love God. It was because of unrepentant sin that everything happened in Ethan's life. Even with the law of God spelled out for them, they couldn't fix their inner brokenness. Sin and death loomed over them. It still looms over us and disrupts our peace. Jesus brought salvation to that problem. First, in his own life, he never sinned. He's stronger than the stranglehold of sin because he's God in human flesh. Second, he died under the penalty of our sins so that God, our judge, can forgive us. Christ was punished for us. And third, he was raised from the dead, victorious over our sins. Our sin is defeated. It has no strength. Even death itself cannot hold us. When Jesus returns, we will be raised from the dead to live with him forever. Those who trust Jesus will be saved spiritually. We who trust Christ, one day when he comes back, we will be free of sin's power, of sin's temptation, of sin's guilt and shame fully forever. The, the inner darkness, the flesh that we still battle with will be gone. But even now, before that time, we can experience it in part 
through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. He can empower us to no longer sin, to love God, to, to obey God, to live at peace spiritually with God and ourselves. So that's our hope. But that's only the spiritual aspect of, our saving, of the saving work that Jesus has done. The second part is relational. So look at verse 68, and then we'll jump forward to 72 through 74. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. The problem that we need to be saved from is more than a simple behavior problem. Jesus didn't come just to remove our guilt and change our hearts so that we would behave and live forever. No. Let me ask you this. What's your biggest fear? I read a recent survey and said the number one fear among Americans is public speaking. What I'm doing right now. I used to suck wind. I, I, literally, I'd get in front of a congregation to preach, and within a minute, I go, <gasps> just absolute overwhelming fear. And why is it? Why are we so afraid of speaking in front of a crowd like this? And thank you to the Franzellas for doing it this morning. In this two-way conversation that's happening right now, y'all signs real quiet. And everybody's looking at me. I can feel very exposing. I can feel very alone. Um... You can have this whole other narrative going on in the back of your head about what people are perceiving. And, but I think there's another fear underneath that fear that's way more um, real and that people would never respond to a funny survey from the USA Today and say, what am I most afraid of? It's dying alone. It's people not loving me. It's not being accepted and cherished. It's, 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 it's being, being forgotten. I think that's the real fear. Why does every one of us have that dread in the back of our minds and hearts? It's because that's the world we're born into. And it's what sin does to us. Sin separates us from God. It, it, it tears up our relationships. It messes up families and societies. God looked into that reality. God looked into that terror. And what did he say to Abraham? I will be your God and you will be my people. He chose Abraham and said, you, Abraham, you're going to be the father of my people. And then through that family, I'm going to reestablish a relationship with all the families of the whole earth. And you will not be alone. Look at the promises God made to Abraham. He's, now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Paul explains this in Galatians chapter 3 when he says this. Know then 
that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles through faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. When we believe in Jesus, what happens? We become a member of Abraham's family. We get adopted into Israel, into the family of God, a family. And who's our father like in this family? He's a father of unending, steadfast, generous love. When we believe Jesus, God makes a personal commitment to us to love us and to care for us no matter what. And then he gives us brothers and sisters who are called to do the same. Yes, we need to be saved from the power and guilt of our sin. Yes, we want to live forever free from temptation, free from the flesh. We also don't want to be alone. We also want to to feel loved. And in Jesus, that promise is ours to claim for the future. When Jesus returns, all the alienation and loneliness and insecurity that we feel in this life will be done away with because we will have experienced his love and the love of our brothers and sisters perfectly. We will be with God and with one another in perfect unity and community forever. But even now, brothers, sisters, you can experience this now, partially and incompletely, here, through these people and through a relationship with God himself. But let's not miss the end goal of these relationships. Zachariah points it out. Back to verses 72 through 74. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. This sounds like um, Moses when he's talking to Pharaoh uh, about leaving Egypt too that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. God saved us to serve him forever, to worship him forever. This is the proper relationship of us in relationship to God and each other. We together, as we believe in Jesus, become mutual worshipers of God, mutual servants of God, and we will live together forever in praise of the God who saved us. So we're going to be saved, yes, spiritually. We're also going to be saved relationally. But last, we're going to be saved politically and physically. We've got an election year coming up, so you may think politically. We may get really excited about that. The gospel in a sentence is this. Jesus is Lord. And that means that Jesus is the king over all kings. When Jesus was born, God came to earth. The creator entered creation. The rightful owner and Lord of you and everybody you know and everything on this earth. The rightful owner and Lord entered this earth that he might reign it under his control once more. And that is a political and physical reality. When Jesus returns, he returns to clean house to do away with all his enemies and to establish his unrivaled rule and reign. And we, his resurrected and perfected people, we will live forever in a perfectly just society. Humanity will be what it was created to be. And all of this we have baked into the promises made to David that Zechariah hearkens to in his songs. Look again at verse 68 through verse 74. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
for he's visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. These words of Zechariah are a direct response to Ethan in Psalm 89. What had Ethan said back then? He said, God, you made all these promises to David, but now his crown lies in the dust. What will you do? God's response to Ethan through Zechariah is Jesus. Jesus was restoration from exile. When and how did Israel return from exile? We're going to talk about this more at length next week. So Israel's kingship had been unseated by Babylon. Jerusalem had been decimated. How would they be restored? It wasn't restored on the day that Cyrus let them go. So they could go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. When they did that, it was left lacking. Something was still not right. Something in their hearts was still not right. Something in their relationship with God was still not right. And their relationship to the nations around them was still not right. So that didn't fix it. And for the record, the the reestablishment of a political Israel in 1948, that didn't fix it either. When did Israel come back from exile? When Jesus defeated all the enemies of his people in his death and was raised from the dead and ascended to the throne and sat down and even now is bringing all his enemies under his feet. Today, we see the kingdom of God coming to bear. We see Israel returning from exile as people trust the king of Israel, Jesus, and as they spread his message and the effects of his kingdom. But one day, When Jesus returns, this partial work will be completed. And all of Israel's enemies, all of those who hate us, from Satan to the world to our flesh itself, all our enemies will be done away forever. And the kingdom of Christ will last forever. A perfect society that we will enjoy with resurrected bodies prepared to live forever. This is salvation. This is our political and physical hope. Those who trust Jesus will be saved spiritually, relationally, politically, and physically. So the question then, do you see your hope more clearly now? This is your future if you trust Christ. And I encourage you to trust Christ. If you do, if you see this hope a little more clearly today, how does that hope of future salvation speak directly to the pain you're feeling right now? How does that hope speak directly to the confusion and the doubt that you're experiencing in the present? Remember, God has always kept his promises. He kept his promises to Abraham and to Moses and David. He kept his promises to Ethan and to Zechariah. He'll even keep those promises that have yet not come to full fruition. And we know that because Jesus came back from the dead. The job's already done. Salvation is already completed, but has not yet been brought to full fruition. Those who trust Jesus will be saved spiritually, relationally, politically, and physically. We experience it in part today 
But when Jesus returns, we will experience it in full. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know you will not return until all your elect have been brought in. We know you will not return until people of all tongues, tribes, and nations have heard the good news of the gospel. Until your gospel has been spread by spirit-filled people to the ends of the earth. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, come soon. But before you do, spread your name. The hope of salvation. Ah, that we could be free from our shame and our guilt and our death and our isolation and our loneliness and for the corruption of the world and Satan and our flesh, that we could be saved from all these things. May that message of hope, may it help us, Lord, to endure the present. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on the horizon of Christ's return. And may we be people who, like Gabriel, share this good news with the people around us, with the people of the world who do not know it yet. Lord Jesus, come. Come soon and make all things right. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.